Praise the Lord. Let's go before the Lord with the word of prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you've gathered us here together and your saints, your, your called out ones. And uh, we thank you we're here to hear your voice, to hear your word. And I just ask you'll speak to all of our hearts, Lord. And you truly have created us for your glory and for your pleasure, Lord. And, and so we're just thankful for that, that you're here to, to meet with us and speak with us. And we trust that you'll do that today in Jesus name. We talked on Job last week, and I want to preach again on Job. This will probably be the only other message I'll have. I read about a uh, Puritan pastor. This is no kidding. He taught out of Job to his congregation for 27 years. <laughs> I mean, I kid you not. I think John Calvin taught 149 messages out of Job. So you guys are getting off easy. You can definitely get more than two, but I'm just going to touch on a few things that I wasn't able to cover Last week, and there's still more I'd like to say, but you'll probably leave it at this. If you would turn to Job, we're going to still be in chapter 1, and we'll look and just read a few verses here out of that chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. And it says, And then Job arose, after all he had lost, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. You know, so there's some people, I hope, hopefully that's not the case with a lot of people here, think the Bible's kind of out of date and maybe doesn't necessarily speak to their current needs. Really, I don't know. Maybe some people don't read it that much for that reason. They'd rather read something else. You know, because he's like, how can the problems that happened back in the ancient Middle East relate to us in 21st century America or this world? But the Bible itself claims that it is the only book and it alone is the only book that can instruct us on how to live in this present evil world. And really, there's no aspect of life that the Bible doesn't cover, either directly or in principles. It tells us about the origin of life. It's going to tell us how life will end, how this world's going to end, and everything in between. I mean, really, there isn't any other book like it. I remember back in the day, we stayed at a Marriott, had one of those Mormon Bibles in there, and I'm reading that thing, I'm thinking, this is pure confusion. I mean, I'm like, how could anybody embrace this? But when you read the Word of God, just something in you speaks that this is truth. You know, especially if you're his child, it says my sheep will hear my voice, but it is. It just witnesses with you that it's right. Now, God has placed the book of Job. It's not in there as some kind of difficult piece of poetry, and it is poetry, majority of it, except for chapters one and two. And at the end, all the middle is really given in poetic form. It is a little difficult to read for a lot of people, and they don't bother reading it or trying to understand it. And I'm not going to try to do that today. I would make one suggestion. Generally, I don't recommend these translations that aren't literal. But in the case of Job, back a few years back when, like I said, I taught it in prison, I got the NLT, New Living Translation, and I would read that in conjunction with reading, you know, the New King James, King James or whatever. And it was very helpful, just if you ever want to study the book of Job. It kind of made difficult sections a little easier to understand. That's just a, a little aside there. But... He has put this in here, though, so we can learn why the righteous suffer, to give us that insight. And I'm saying it is totally relevant to everybody in here today. And why do I say that? Because all of us in here either have or will have the experience of 
chapter 1, verse 13, if you would look at that. And look what it says there. It says, now there was a day. Everyone in here will have your day. And maybe some of you feel like you've had several already. And that day may even be like with Job. I think Job's day started out sunny. Love, joy, peace, and prosperity was in his life. And it says before the sunset, before the sunset on that day, there was a day, right? Calamity after calamity fell on his head. Disaster of one kind or another fell on top of his head. And it caused Job to exclaim this. He said, he will not allow me to get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. I couldn't even get my breath and fills me with bitterness. Now, I understand Job is the extreme case. He's the extreme case in his prosperity. He had riches like no one else on earth. There's very few people as rich as him. And even in the end, he was richer than he was before. It's extreme in that case. And it's also extreme in the case of what he suffered. Calamities like no other. So our trials, our day is somewhere in between his. But we're all going to have our day. You will. I guarantee that. It will come at some point in your life. So in a sense, we're all Job. To a greater or a lesser degree, and I would say, praise God, we can thank him that it's mostly to a lesser degree, right? I don't think anybody's going to have greater trials than Job. In a sense, then, this book is totally relevant to everyone in here, to every 21st century believer. Because here's the thing, God hasn't changed, the devil hasn't changed, and man hasn't changed. Talked about that before. I mean, technology has changed, but the basic things and the basic needs of man have never changed. And we know God hasn't changed, and the devil will be forever the devil. Evil, that's the way he is. To make the point here, 2,000 years after Job was written, at the time of Christ, Satan was still demanding to test God's children. And we know that because in Luke 22:31, Jesus says this right before his crucifixion. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Now, the Greek for asked for, which is what it says in New King James, I think King James says he has desired. The Greek is a lot stronger than that. It really has the sense of demand or to demand permission. And just like Job, just like Job, the father allowed Peter and the apostles to be tested by the devil, to sift them like wheat. And that's an idiom. It would be the equivalent of our English idiom to pick him apart. Allow the devil to just pick him apart. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, the father won't allow him to do that because he loves you so much. That isn't what Jesus said when he said that he's going to sift you like wheat. Instead, he tells Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So just like Job, Satan severely sifts the apostles to see if their faith is is genuine. Now their faith faltered, Peter's faith faltered, didn't it? But it proved to be real. And he repented, didn't he? He repented after he denied the Lord. But did he repent because he was so strong and stable? No, the reason he repented is why. The Lord tells you, he says, I'm going to pray for you. And if Jesus wasn't praying for him and his grace wasn't, he would have never repented, would he? And listen, he's praying for us in here, isn't he? He's praying for us when we're in trial. And that's a great comfort, isn't it? Because if he wasn't praying for us, he wasn't holding us in his hand, he wasn't watching out for us, none of us would be able to withstand the attacks in the wiles of the enemy, right? And so we can praise God for that.
that's what happened. He tested Peter in them. And because Peter experienced God's grace, Jesus said, because you experienced that grace in your life, you'll be able to help others. So a lot of times we go through things, we go through this sifting, a lot of times we don't understand it, and one of the purposes is, is just so that we can help someone down the road. I mean, surely people have been through trials in here, and you run across either someone within our church or outside of our church that you're able to help. You're like, I have been through that. Maybe not exactly, but pretty close. And let me tell you how God got me through that. And you can encourage somebody that way, right? And that's what Peter did. And Peter helps us 2,000 years after that. So this is 4,000 years since the trial of Job. And that same sifting is going to go on, isn't it? It continues on. So he writes in chapter 4 of 1 Peter 4.12, he writes, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. He's saying, don't think it's strange. Fiery trials, that's the sifting. This end time sifting is going to take place because he goes on to say that judgment must take place in the house of God. And that's that sifting that's going to take place. God is going to allow Satan to sift all of us as believers. And why is that? It's the same purpose with Job. We're going to see, we're going to be able to tell whose faith, we'll know ourselves and we'll see in others, whose faith is genuine and whose faith isn't. That's what that sifting will do. That's what those fiery trials will do. So I would say one of the primary things we should be concerned with at this time is how can I face trouble, adversity, suffering, because those fiery trials are going to come like they did with Job. And James wrote this. He says, you have heard of the endurance of Job. Now, we've heard about it. And the question I have for myself is, how can I get that same endurance? Because I'm going to need it. We will need it. Matthew 24, Jesus said this, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. The endurance of Job, he was able to endure all the trouble and adversity that came his way. And it's going to be that way as as time moves on. It's already getting to be that way in this country. Because iniquity will abound. It says people's love that started off strong will grow cold. Waxed cold is the picture of when you blow on a spoon that has hot soup in it. It just gradually cools off by that blowing. And that's what's going to happen. This effect of this culture, this lack of love, this sin is going to start wearing on people. That's where you're going to need the grace of God, aren't we? We're going to need to know him so that we can endure to the end. Because enduring for a little while isn't going to get it, is it? We got to endure all the way to the end. So I think there's some things that we can learn and understand in this study of Job that will help us to endure to the end. And first of all, I think we need to understand why suffering happens. Because the first thing people ask when terrible things strike them in their life is why? So if God is good and loving, if he's all powerful, then why? Why all this evil in this world? Why is that the case? Well, we have to go back to Genesis to get the answer to that. And in Genesis, we read what? We read in the beginning, God. So before anything was made, there is a God who didn't need a thing, did he? He was totally happy in himself, didn't need a thing. 
and decided that I'm a good God and I'm going to create a world filled with goodness. And everything he makes, it comes with this pronouncement. And God saw that it was good. So all of creation is good that he makes. There's no flaws. And especially there is no flaws in man, in us, in Adam, when he was created. No flaws at all. Made in the image of God. And Adam and Eve, they truly did. This is hard to imagine. But they truly did love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what they did. And he made them with natures that were inclined towards that. They weren't inclined towards evil. They were inclined to love the Lord. And they naturally chose to love and worship the Lord. And that's what the garden was like. And out of their love and worship and adoration for him, they loved each other. There was harmony there. There wasn't any strife. Life in the garden, it revolved around God. It did. His love, his goodness, his holiness. Then we learn from Genesis, shortly thereafter comes the fall. And now, instead of everything revolving around God, it revolves around me, myself, and I. Because what was the temptation that the devil presented to Eve? If you eat that fruit, what did he say will happen? You will be like God. And after the fall, that became the nature of man. His life didn't revolve around God. It revolved around him. It became a little God, a little selfish God. Whenever God lifts his restraining hand of grace and sin is allowed to have his full reign, you know what? And it's, come, it's happening now as we sit here. But it happened in the book of Judges. And what does it say at the very last sentence in the book of Judges where Israel was at? They got to the point where it said, every man did that which is right in his own sight. They're a little God. We're going to do what we think is right. It doesn't matter what God says. It doesn't matter what we're going to violate our conscience. And that's what we have coming now. That's what we have coming into this world. And so God's good universe, which was perfect when he created it in every way, what happened to it? It became filled with envy, hatred, war, jealousy, gossip, adultery, drunkenness, idolatry, and so on. And with all that came the curse, sickness, death, and suffering. So to get back to my first point here, why are all these calamities happening? Why is there suffering? Why is there trouble? One word answers that, sin. Because if there was no sin, there would be no calamities because God created a perfect world, a good world, didn't he? James 1 says, do not be deceived, my brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God in Genesis clearly tells us why there's evil and suffering in the world. It didn't come from him. It's not his fault. It's because of man's sin and rebellion against a good loving and holy God. And we need to see that. The reason I'm saying that is, is because you hear this coming out. We think like the world in too many ways, but the world paints this picture of man being basically good and that mother nature seems to throw all these unfair disasters at us. And the insurance companies, the way they describe it is they are acts of God. And isn't that the way people think that oh, most people are basically good and all these disasters, it's just terrible. <laughs> and the Bible paints the picture 
Not like that. It paints the picture of man being in rebellion, set against God, wanting to be independent of God, and under the judgment of God, despising his goodness. And the Bible really declares that it's not remarkable that so many bad things happen to people, but the remarkable thing is that there are not more bad things that happen. We like to throw that phrase around, but it is true. How are you doing? Better than I deserve. That really is the case with everybody on this earth. Because the Bible represents the God of the Old and New Testament as remarkably patient and forgiving. Just think about yourself. When somebody crosses you and does something that you don't think is right and treats you, whatever, your reaction isn't initially you're going to be long-suffering, forgiving, and to do them good, is it? Let's be honest about that. To accuse God of like, why is he letting all this happen? And he's not loving whatever. The Bible presents the opposite picture of that. He's not giving us what we deserve. Psalm 78 says, Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth, lied to him with their tongue, for their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, Many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. The amazing thing is that a holy God puts up with us. And we sing the song. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning and great is thy faithfulness. So what does it say about God that we're basically good and and he's just not really treating us that well? I mean, it says right in Matthew, he loves even the sinners, that he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, the evil and the good. And he causes his reign to fall on whom? The just, not only the just, but he causes his reign and blessings to fall on the unjust. Most people that live in this world, sinner or saint, are not in constant agony, are they? That's just not generally the rule of thumb, how things are. So that's the beginning. That tells us why suffering happens. You go to the end, though, Revelation, the book of Revelation tells us what? It tells us that it will all end one day. It'll all end. Begins in Genesis, ends in Revelation, and then the book of Revelation says there will be a great final judgment, which will usher in a new heaven And a new earth. And what is our goal in this church, in this life, as Christians? What is our goal? What are we aiming for here? We're aiming for the new heavens and the new earth, aren't we? And we get there, there is going to be a supernatural transformation of everything we see. No more death, curse, sickness, strife. Everything is going to be new. And all of the oppression, injustice, all of the lawlessness that people have experienced and don't understand and somehow has been allowed to go on, all of that is going to be made right in the end. That's what Revelation tells us. There's going to be what they call the great reversal. In Luke 16, we have poor, righteous Lazarus. Suffering, isn't he? Hunger. He's lame. Ulcers all over his body, a lot like Job, ignored by the rich man who lived in luxury. But in the end, isn't it? It's all reversed, right? Justice prevails at last, doesn't it? Because 
When the rich man died, it says he cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I'm tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And the thing we need to hear from that is, is that will not be changed for all eternity. What does that tell us? There's going to be, for a lot of people, the great reversal on comfort and suffering, isn't it? Because all things are going to be made right then. And what we need to see from that is that there is a heaven to be gained, isn't there? And a hell to be shunned. That's what that tells me. And Peter wrote this in 2 Peter. He says, the day of the Lord, it's coming. He says, it'll come as a thief in the night. Therefore, because of that, since all these things, everything you see in this world is going to be dissolved. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, now you think that thing out in California is a mess, which it is. But it's all going to be on fire. The heavens, they're going to dissolve being on fire. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, he says, we, according to his promise, we look for a new heavens and a new earth in which will dwell righteousness. That is our goal, isn't it? That's Pilgrim's Progress. Isn't that where we're heading? We're going to have all those trials and tribulations, the sloth of the spawn, all the afflictions, all the attacks of the enemy, but that's where we're headed, isn't it? The celestial city. That is our goal. So like I said, there may be a lot of suffering and trouble we don't understand now, but one day it will be all cleared up and every mouth will be stopped. Put something there in Job and turn over to Psalm 73. I want to read this psalm. Psalm 73. Because the psalmist in Psalm 73 was struggling with the fact that things seemed upside down from the way they should be. Psalm 73, beginning in verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. That's the way he begins because he's given us the end at the beginning here. He said, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They are doing so good. For there is no pangs in their death, verse 4, but their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, that's the words of the ungodly. These are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. And the psalmist says, well, surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence for all day long. I have been plagued, chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until 
I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. These ones that seemed to be prospering, nothing going wrong, everything going their way. And here was their end. He says, surely, without a doubt, you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. And oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. This is what God does for us. He's continually with us. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterwards receive me to glory. And whom have I in heaven but you? There's none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all of your works. So it may seem that the wicked prosper and are healthy and it's in vain to trust the Lord. And that's what he's struggling with. But to me, verses 27 and 28 sum it all up. That those who are far from the Lord, what will happen to them? No matter how it appears in this life, they're far from the Lord. What will happen to them? They will perish, desert. He says he'll forsake and desert everyone that's left him for harlotry, for other gods. But it's good for me to draw near to God, and I will put my trust in the Lord. That's the way we should be living, and that's what he sees in the end. Here, our goal in this life, it's not a life with no suffering. That's not our goal. Our goal is to say, I want to go through this life with no suffering. We're promised that. Acts 14, it says, we must, through much tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. That word must, D-E-I in the Greek, it is a word that means must. It is necessary. There are no options. It has to be that way. And it says we must, through much tribulations, enter into the kingdom of God. So our goal isn't to avoid the suffering, isn't it? It's to make the new heavens and the new earth. And that suffering is the doorway into it. Isn't that what the New Testament says? That is what it says. It says of the saints in Hebrews 11... It says this about them. They were tortured, mocked, imprisoned, destitute, afflicted, tormented. And it says, of whom the world was not worthy. Why? Why were they willing to endure all of that? Because it also says in Hebrews 11, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth and that they desired a better, that is, a heavenly country. And that's what it said of Abraham. He saw that eternal city. That was his goal. Strangers and pilgrims. That has to be our attitude. Our eyes are on that eternal kingdom. And instead we get to like the faith message where we want all these blessings. That's what it's all about, the here and now blessings. I'm saying, no, it's not. 
Yeah, it is that God will provide our needs and he'll provide all the things that he's promised us. But that is to do his will. And through that, trials will come that are our preparation for that heavenly city. That's really where we need to be headed. And I don't know how much we think along those lines. We got our eyes too much on the present. The third point today is to see some of the reasons why the righteous suffer or the, the innocent what purpose does it serve? You know, when the righteous suffer, doesn't it make God appear to be unjust, unloving, and cruel? And that's what the book of Job is all about. So we saw last week, you know, we're told in chapters 1 and 2 what Job's trial is all about. God was going to demonstrate to angels, to the devil, to the whole world, what his grace can do in a man's life. His grace will cause men to willingly willingly love, serve, and worship God strictly because he's worthy, not because they're getting anything out of it. And Satan's challenge to that is, is that nobody's like that. Nobody's like that. Everybody's got a price and I'll prove it. That's what he said. And that's the challenge. We know it. We know it reading chapters one and two, but poor Job doesn't, does he? He doesn't know what all that's going on. He's an innocent victim. This man, Don Carson, said this. He says, at no point does Job abandon faith in God. At no point does he follow his wife's advice to curse God. And it's precisely because he knows God to be there, to be loving and just, that he has such a hard time understanding such injustice. What's happening to him? He said, Job wrestles with God. He is indignant with God. He challenges God to come before him and provide some answers. But all his struggles are the struggles of a believer. He's trying to come to grips with, I know I haven't done anything worthy of what's happened to me, but I also know that God is just and loving and he's not unjust. I don't understand this. And that's his struggle. That's the struggle he's having in that book. The Lord makes that challenge to Satan. It goes forth and wave after wave of disaster hits Job. The Sabaeans and the Chaldeans steal his oxen and camel. Fire comes, probably lightning, catches a field on fire, burns up his sheep. A great wind comes and strikes the house. His children were having a party and kills all ten. Men in nature, it's not just nature, it's men in nature controlled by Satan. You think Satan can control men? Didn't God say, I want to deceive those prophets down there? Who's going to go for me? God wanted to deceive them. Did he do it? What did he say? These lying spirits came and they said, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of those prophets. And the Lord says, then you go. Well, God's the one wanting them to be deceived, right? But it's the devil working through these men. And that's what was happening there with Job. And then God allows Satan to smite Job with these boils from head to toe. Painful. I can't imagine. Looks so bad. His friends, they can't even speak to him. He looks so bad. They don't even recognize him. Unbelievable set of events. And yet, I'll tell you one thing that we didn't talk about last week, and that is Job takes all of that with a grace and a dignity that is unmatched in Scripture. The suffering that came his way. I'd say unmatched except for what we read about the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Nothing will ever surpass that. The grace and dignity as he's suffering excruciating pain on that cross concern for his mother praying for people to be forgiven has time for that thief to tell him that he'll see him in the kingdom not railing on anybody that is grace and dignity but what Job did here all of that happens to him in one day loses everything he has 
And it says he arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. Worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now that's a godly man, isn't it? Grace and dignity from a man that has suffered great loss. Man, that's impressive, isn't it? I think it is. It really is. And his friends come along. The Bible says they came to him to mourn and to comfort him. And somehow the comforting got misplaced, I think. They were, they were miserable comforters for him. <laughs> you know, like I said, the only wise thing they did was they sat with him for seven days and didn't say a word. That was the best thing they did for old Job because the bulk of the book, they are on his case because they're saying that God is just and Job has to be a sinner to receive all this punishment. For instance, in Job 8, I believe it's Bildad says, does the Almighty pervert justice? This is what they say to Job. If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplications to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. And what they're saying is, Job, any fool can see that if you really were righteous, God would restore you back to your rightful place and bless you. So you must be a hypocrite. That's what they literally would tell him. You've got to be a hypocrite. And Job just steadfastly declared his innocence. In chapter 10, he said this, I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. You know that I am not wicked. And that was Job's stance throughout all those middle chapters. And they just keep having this cycle of these three friends coming at him, all of them saying basically the same thing in a different way. So finally, Job gets so frustrated with these guys. I thought this was funny. He says, no doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. The discussion gets pretty heated between him and those three. You know, You're the people. <laughs> you know everything. Wisdom's going to die when you die. You're so smart. That's what he tells them. And finally, out of all of that, they go round and around. The Lord appears to Job and speaks. Ask him questions. And here's the way he says, now you prepare yourself like a man. And I'll question you and you shall answer me. To me, it's like, man, here he is laying there scraping himself with all this loss and suffering. And I mean, God doesn't give you much sympathy, does he? You gird yourself up, prepare yourself like a man. I've got some questions I'm going to ask you, Job, because Job had said some pretty hard things against the Lord. And he asked things like, uh, Job, let me ask you, have you ever designed a snowflake? That thing that'll be in your hand and melt one second later, but we know now from what we can see with microscopes, the intricate design, no two are alike. Job, have you ever done that? He asked him that. Have you ever created a hippo? Can you tell me when the wild mountain goats give birth? Do you know when that happens, Job? Are you up there? Do you know all about that? What about star constellations, Job? Do you have any way of creating those and putting those in place, that <laughs> the bear that's up there in the sky? What about that? And on and on. And when he keeps coming on Job in that way and basically showing Job, who are you to impugn my justice and my wisdom and my love and my goodness? And it says Job repents. What did he repent of? Of his arrogance towards God Almighty and for questioning his justice. Job finally, through all that, he saw himself for who he was. He says, behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. 
We see through that, this is a long way of getting to this, that Job's trial was more, wasn't it? It was more than what we saw in chapters one and two of God displaying his faith, Job's faith. What's he doing through this? It's what he does to us through our trials. He's developing character in Job. Character that could be developed no other way because it's the only way that moral character can be given. It's not through creation, but through experience, trials. Moral character comes through experiencing trials. James 1, my brother, encountered all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, but let endurance have its perfect work. Why? That you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking nothing. That's why it's so critical that we don't give up on the Lord. We've got to continue to trust Him because that is the way we are perfected. Avoiding trials will never bring perfection. It'll never bring the maturity that God wants to have in us. It's the only way we can have a godly character. Even Jesus couldn't bypass trials. Could he? We read in Hebrews 5, 8, Though he were a son, the son of God, yet learned he obedience, how? By the things which he suffered. Jesus himself, our Lord Jesus, had to learn what obedience was through experience, didn't he? Not what obedience was on paper, not what it is in your head, but obedience that is lived. So Job could be taught this, that a righteous man will never abandon the Lord no matter what. And he could even wholeheartedly agree with that. But it wasn't until he went through what he went through, he didn't really know that experientially, did he? And that's the case a lot of times, but he knew what it meant. When he went through that, what wasn't part of his character, guess what? It became part of his character. So we can sing the song, I have decided to follow Jesus, though none go with me, still I will follow. But until we experience what Paul did, where he wrote in 2 Timothy, at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me, but the Lord stood with me and strengthen me until we experience that. It won't be part of our DNA yet, will it? But it seems like that group seems to be narrowing down, doesn't it? How many are following the Lord? How many are willing to trust the Lord? How many are willing to walk in a message of holiness in a separated life? It's narrowing down. Faithfulness and obedience to God is always right. Even if we don't understand what's happened to us. So when you're faithful in obedience, when it seems like God's hand is against you, that's how you can know whether you have a truly godly character. That's how you can know if you're truly saved and if you're one of the elect. Look at Joseph. Joseph had a promise. Your dad, your mom, and your brothers, they're all going to bow down to you. And after he had that promise, everything that happened in his life pointed in the complete opposite direction sold by his brothers as a slave, falsely accused, imprisoned, though he was innocent. But here's the thing we see. Joseph, despite all that, was always faithful to God and lived an obedient, righteous life, even when it got him in trouble, even when it didn't appear to pay at all. Just the opposite. The more righteous he was, the deeper down in the pit he went. 
And even sometimes it appeared that God was mocking him. God is the one that gave him the interpretation to Pharaoh's dream. And when that happened, it surely looked like Joseph's expectations were raised. It surely looked like he was going to get out of that prison, didn't he? And instead, what happened? Two more years in that prison. Can you imagine what he would have thought? It's like, God, you are mocking me, making it look like this is going to end. And what are you doing to me? That had to be the way he felt. You know, we've read the story so many times and heard it. We know how it ends. You put yourself in his shoes. He's back in there where it looks like he's going to get out, and all of a sudden, all those hopes are dashed again. He had no idea he would ever get out, did he? He had no idea at that point. Despite that, he remained faithful and obedient, didn't he? There's a lot of people who be like, well, if that's the way it is, and this isn't going to pay, I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to do what I can, right? He wasn't like that. He was faithful and obedient when it didn't pay. And what godly, holy character was developed in that man through the trial he went through, through those hard trials. It can't be developed in us any other way. And we need to remember that when things happen. Why is this happening to me? We need to remember God is developing character in me. If he shows you you've got sin in your life, deal with that. That's part of it too. You're like, man, as far as I can tell, I've not done anything wrong. As far as I know, I'm walking in the light I've had then it's not like there's no purpose in it. He's developing endurance, character, trust in you. So God can seem sometimes to take away what he's promised and it makes no sense to us at all. I've been there. And here's the thing is what we can't see is what he can see is he has got a greater glory that he is going to exhibit in us. There's this illustration, this story, A.B. Simpson. It's a true story. A.B. Simpson gives in his book, The Cross of Christ. And he talks about this man, Richard Cecil. And he asked his little daughter as she sat on his knee. She had these cluster of glass beads around her neck. She said, he said, well, if you truly loved me, would you love me enough to take those beads off and fling them in the fire? She looked in his face with wonder and grief. She could hardly believe that he meant such sacrifice, but the way he was looking at her, his steady gaze told her that he was earnest, that he meant what he said. So she took that necklace off, and A.B. Simpson, right, her hand is trembling, and reluctantly she steps over to the grate, and clinging to them with reluctant fingers, at last just drops them in the fire. And then she got so upset, she flung herself in her dad's arms, sobbed, till she was finally still, and was bewildered and perplexed at everything that happened. And it says, he said this, this man, let her learn her lesson. Let her learn her lesson fully. Because it says, a few days later on her birthday, she found upon her dressing case a little package. And on opening it, she found inside a cluster of real pearls strung upon a necklace bearing her name with her father's love. And it said she had scarcely time to grasp the beautiful present as she flew to his presence and throwing herself in his arms, she said, oh, Papa, I am so sorry I did not understand. And Simpson wrote this. He said, someday, beloved, in his arms, you will understand. He does not always explain it now. He lets the cross have all its sharpness. He lets the weary years go by. But, oh, someday we will understand and be so glad that we were permitted to bear with him and for him the, quote, brand marks of the Lord Jesus. 
So what we need to see and know and we learn from Job is that God is a loving father and he has to chastise us, his children. Because if he doesn't, what does it say? We're illegitimate. But chastisement takes on many forms. The word means training a child. It's not always punishment. And one of my Greek dictionaries for this word that's used for chastisement means to assist in the development of a person's ability to make right choices. To discipline. And that doesn't just mean corporal punishment necessarily with your children. There's correction. There's instruction. There's guidance. And it can be punishment at times to help them make the right choice. Don't make that choice again. It won't pay. But it's all of that. So God can chastise or train us, and it doesn't have to be because we've sinned. Everybody wants to think, well, chastisement, that's got to be sin. Not necessarily. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's correction. Titus 2.12 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. And that is the same word that's used in Hebrews 12 for chastise. Teaching us. Chastising us. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. He says it's the grace of God. We all want to sing about the grace of God. It's the grace of God that has come to chastise us, to instruct us, to teach us to deny worldly lust and to live a godly life in this world, to develop holy characters. That's God's grace in our lives. That's his love manifested. And one man says this, without trials, we would become self-confident, overconfident, spiritually careless, and indifferent. God knows human nature well enough to know that we must learn obedience, not out of a book, but through trials. Psalm 119.67, it says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. So before the Lord dealt with me and trained me and chastised me, I was going astray. He says, but now, since that's happened, I keep your word. And he adds, you are good and do good. So he sees the benefit in God's training, chastisement and correction and affliction because he's saying, I would have kept going astray. Now, growing up, my mom was a pretty strict mother. I mean, probably not really compared to some of these Puritan mothers, but I thought she was strict and and demanding, and we had a lot of chores we had to do, and all my friends didn't seem to have to do all the chores I had to do, and I kind of resented that at the time. But man, I couldn't thank her enough when I grew up and going up there and visit her, both my parents. Well, I thank you so much for teaching me what discipline is, and to take care of things, and to do things the right way, because I see others, they're not that way. They don't have a sense of responsibility. I thank you guys for putting that in me. And that's what we'll do to God when we get to heaven. I thank you for making me holy, that I can dwell in this place of righteousness. I have no desire to be where all the unrighteous are. And that's what he's doing for us. What we also need to know, and we see this in Job, is that we are more, I'll say it for myself, more full of pride than we care to admit. And a trials like Job will deal with your pride like nothing else can. It will. I had a brother tell me recently, going through a hard trial, that God opened his eyes to see that he is nothing. And God owes him nothing. And we're totally dependent on God for everything. Psalm 39, 4 says, Lord, the psalmist says, Lord, make me to know my end 
and what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am. And trials will do that to you, won't they? To quote a godly minister, God's children are permitted the experiences of trials and suffering that through them they might see themselves as God sees them and they might see God as he really is. Such a revelation will humble a true child of God. It is often through the humbling experience of suffering that man comes to realize he is but flesh and that God's ways are often beyond his finite wisdom and understanding. That's what happened to Job. Because when he got to the end of that and the Lord had spoken to him, he said in chapter 40, behold, I am vile. He saw himself for who he really is in God's eyes. I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Saw himself for who he really is, vile. And then later in chapter 42, a couple chapters later, he says this. He saw himself for who he was, but through that trial, he saw God for who he was. He said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now, he says, my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. That is about the most healthy thing we could ever experience, to truly see ourselves as God sees us and see him for who he really is. Because we tend to have it the other way around. We think we're the center of the universe, and he's somewhere out there on the periphery. Hope he helps me every now and then. No, it's just the opposite. We're nothing. Vile. We are. In my flesh dwells no good thing. Let me just end by saying this. One root question is, does God expect us to trust him at all times? Does God expect us to trust him at all times? And I would say the Bible from Genesis to Revelation gives a resounding yes to that question. And especially when there's things we don't understand and God's goodness and faithfulness are in question. So even when everything in Job's life pointed to failure, he, it was failure, confusion, injustice on God's part, and God's apparent lack of love and concern for Job's suffering. Still, we know the famous line in Job 13, what he cried out. He says, why do I put myself in jeopardy? And why do I take my life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. The Bible clearly teaches that God always expects us to trust him and his promises, even when we don't understand. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Psalm 118.8, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Amen? I'm telling you it is. <laughs> Jeremiah 17, 5. Really, it doesn't matter what I'm telling you. It's what God says, isn't it? I can tell you anything. Jeremiah 17, 5. This is still, thus saith the Lord. It's Jeremiah, it's what he says. Jeremiah 17, thus saith the Lord. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. Cursed is the man who trusts in man, makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes. 
but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. And I would say the bottom line with the book of Job is that God is good and loving and just and worthy to be trusted at all times, even when we don't understand, right? He always has our best interest at heart, doesn't he? You've got to believe that. You've got to trust that. Even though he may sift us as wheat. What is he doing while he's doing that? He's not left us in that fire alone. He didn't leave those three Hebrew boys in that fire alone, did he? He's there with them. He may sift us as wheat, but we know this. He's praying for us, isn't he? And he's holding us fast in his hand. Just don't jump out. James Say it again, you have heard of the endurance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. Here's the end. Job 42 is the same as the book of Revelation. The end. The same as Joseph being elevated to be the prince of Egypt. You've heard of the endurance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord that the Lord is very compassionate and of tender mercies. He's not out to destroy us, is he? He's just out to mature us. Amen? To make us holy like Jesus. That's Romans 8, 28. Amen. Well, let's pray. And Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for the, the insight you've given us, Lord, and, and your word concerning Job, the trial he went through, and that we can know at times, Lord, that we don't understand what you're putting us through, but that all things do work together for our good and we may not understand it, but you're just trying to develop character and endurance and a faithful, mature spirit in us. And I thank you, Lord, you'll continue to do that for us. Just ask you'll continue to pray for us and hold us and guide our steps. And I thank you that you'll do that for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, if you stay to your feet. He is good, He is good, His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. He is good, He is good, His love endures forever. Give thanks, for He is good. For His unfailing love and His wonderful peace Give thanks, give thanks to the Lord